teaching them the life skills. I'm really glad you taught the lesson of how to fly kites by power lines. That's a, that's, that's a unique contribution that we bring to Guatemala. Thank you for, for helping us in that effort there. Um, I don't know if you saw that picture. All right, we're turning our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be wrapping up our series in... First Timothy, and then moving into our Act 1-8 initiative for the spring. So three more weeks in First Timothy. And right now in First Timothy, Paul is giving instructions on what it means. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and a buttress of truth. Over the last couple of weeks and over the last couple of chapters, Paul has been instructing the church how to function as a family. That has included how to identify church leaders, how to personally train for godliness, um, the role relationships between those who are older and younger, and the respect that is necessary for older men and young, older men and older women, and how to treat younger men and younger women as brothers and sisters. Um, last two weeks ago, instruction on how to care for widows, and in each one of these different instructions, what Paul is emphasizing is that the gospel message isn't something that we just profess to believe, but it is something that becomes manifested in every area of our life and manifested in every aspect of the church. That is the thrust of this passage here today as well in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and following. It's in this passage that Paul is laying out his description of what leadership should look like in the church. What should be the relationship between church members and church leaders and between leaders and church members, and how do you deal with issues that arise? Paul instructs Timothy. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand in fear. And in the presence of God in Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, send your spirit, we pray, to illumine in your word to our hearts, for a part From your spirit working in us, we cannot understand these things. And so, Father, teach us by your word that our church might uphold your word and that it might be reflected in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, what should the relationship between the church leaders and church members look like? Well, at the least, it should look different than what any organization looks like in the relationship between leaders and those who are members of that organization. But unfortunately, oftentimes the relationships within churches is far worse than things that we see in the secular environment and out in the world. It seems that it's a popular pastime of churches, of church members, to complain about churches and to complain about church leaders. And then at some other churches, there are situations where the, where the pastor and the elders are treated as 
as almost as like demigods, as if they could do no wrong, and there is nothing that should be ever, ever questioned about what they ever do. And then there's other churches, even churches in our own community, where because of the sins and the, inf- the offenses of the pastor, the entire board of elders resigned. Three times. Three different boards of elders resigned in the whole. And the pastor unwilling to deal with the issues that they were confronting him on. Conversely, there's other examples where pastors have or elders have committed egregious sin. And the elders have served to cover that up and to protect that person illegitimately from the offenses that they have committed and the consequences of those offenses. Well, what does it look like for the gospel to be manifest in those relationships? And I think the overarching principle here in this, this passage is that what, the, excuse me, what that relationship should look like is it should look like people who are upholding the Word of God, that they are honoring the Word of God and that they are upholding it in all of their interactions. This goes in two different directions. First off, is to honor God's Word. How? To honor God's word by honoring God's workers. This is what he says in verse 17. Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in teaching and preaching. Now, why this regard for elders? Well, having been through 1 Timothy, we know the answer to this. Paul has been talking in 1 Timothy chapter 2, who should not be elders and the reason why they should not be elders. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he lays out the qualifications of who should be elders. And the reason why he has those qualifications is because it is the responsibilities of the elders to uphold the word of God. It is their responsibility to teach and to preach and to defend God's word. And to uphold it and to, prevent, and to prevent distortion from occurring. Scripture also lays out, as does this verse, that it is the responsibility of the elders to rule. Elder, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. It's their duty to rule, to govern, to have oversight of the people of God within a church body. To have oversight of their members. And that's what Scripture commands. As an aside, this verse is the basis for some of our structuring within our own congregation. How we have, as a church, we have ruling elders and we have teaching elders. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. There is the, the group of elders, the elders who do this. And then as a subset, there are those who, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those, a subset, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so you have the responsibility of elders to rule, to govern the whole church, have the spiritual responsibility to do so. And within that, though all should be capable to teach and defend the faith, there are those in particular whose job is to labor in preaching and teaching. Well, what does it mean to show double honor? At the least, it involves respect. Paul expressly commands this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when he says, we ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so he's calling for the church members, for Christians, to respect their elders and the elders within the church. Well, why? The respect given is not merely positional, because that's the position that they hold. It's not because of personality. This is a major basis in American churches that you respect people who have a charismatic personality. American Christians love personality-driven churches, personality-driven Christians. Um, and 
personality-driven church movements. But that's not the basis of the respect that should be given. It's also not on the basis of a professional respect. Some people say, well, elders, well, you know, elders are pastors. They've been to school about this. They probably know more about this than I do. Um, therefore, they're worthy of respect. That's not the basis that's given in this passage or in the New Testament. The basis for respect and honoring, as it says double honor, is that elders are entrusted with the gospel. It is a respect for the word of God. And elders are responsible for upholding the gospel, upholding the word of God, for for carrying the torch of the gospel and not letting its flame go out and protecting protecting it from anything that would diminish it or distort it. We get a great example of this, I think, of this relationship right now. On October 31st, in Greece, the Olympic torch for the Pyeongchang Olympics, coming starting in a couple weeks, left on October 31st from Greece. The torch was lit, and it has been making its journey around the globe, as they always do, traveling throughout countries with runners, um, carrying the torch and bearing the torch. Now, what would happen if you were standing there and the torch came by you? What would you do? You would, you would pause. You would look. There would be a respect given to the torch bearer, not because he's really special in any way, but there would be a respect given because of anyone right now, that is the person that is bearing the torch. That is the person who has the obligation to bring it to its destination. Similarly, within the church, Paul is commanding, and Scripture's commands, that elders to be given a double honor, not because of anything about them in particular, but because they are the torch bearers. They are ones who are carrying the torch, and they are charged with the proclamation of the gospel, maintaining its fidelity, and the ones who are entrusted to ensure that the gospel goes forth. Yes, all people are commanded to proclaim the gospel, but in particular, it is the elders of a church who are bestowed with the responsibility of maintaining the fidelity of this message. This life-changing, life-giving message that through Christ, our sins are forgiven. Through his resurrection, we have new life. Through faith in Christ, we are adopted into the household of God. Who bears the torch of that message? Scripture says it's the elders of the local church. And because they are the torch bearers, there is a double honor, a respect that is due. So that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect of giving double honor entails compensation. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Well, what does that mean? He tells us, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The teaching of the New Testament, and of scripture, actually the Old Testament as well, is that those who live to proclaim the gospel should make their living through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, some people object to this idea about compensating elders, and some people object to it on the basis and say, well, that's not the New Testament pattern. I mean, Paul was a tent maker, and that's really what we should be striving for. For those that assert that, their answer is a little bit correct. At times, Paul was a tent maker, but most of the time, Paul was not a tent maker. Most of the time, Paul was a support-raised missionary. And he was supported by the church in Antioch to go on his missionary journeys. If you read the letter to Romans, the letter to Romans is a fundraising letter asking for money. Paul says it right in the middle. He says, the reason why I'm writing to you this letter is so that when I arrive, you will have a collection to send me on my way to Spain. Very forthright. Paul was made his living on the basis of being a support-raised missionary. 
and he clarifies his tent making in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. What's the basis of compensation? It's simply Jesus commanded it. Jesus commanded it. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But here is why Paul was a tent maker. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such a provision. Why was Paul a tent maker? Because he refused the compensation that was due to him. He refused his right to, compensa- comp- to compensation. And what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians and then also in 1 Timothy and also in 1 Thessalonians, what Paul says repeatedly, and then he's also quoting Jesus' term in Luke and several other passages of Scripture that are alluded to, is that the church has a God-given command, a God-given obligation to provide a living for those who live to proclaim the gospel. And what Paul is identifying in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is he's saying to the church in Corinth, he says, listen, I could have demanded compensation from you. I could have demanded that I got a living from you, but I did not do so. In fact, I refused my right in that regard. So, the point that I just want to mention here is that what does double honor include? It includes respect as a torchbearer, but it also includes pay and compensation. What exactly does that mean in terms of double honor, in terms of pay? I'm, quite frankly, I'm not exactly sure what the Bible is saying about that. But there's certainly a principle of generosity. And I think you see it in churches across our country and across our globe. Because there is often a correlation between the church's regard for the word of God and the honor that they show to their elders. And how a church honors its elders, both compensation and otherwise, reveals the heart of the church. And it also reveals something else, because it is very closely correlated to how church members value and view their own possessions and their own money, and how they value and view the kingdom of God and the advancement of the gospel. And it is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart in terms of how any one of us individually spends our money. If you examine your checkbook, if you examine your credit card statement, it will demonstrate and show you what you most value. It's also true in the life of a church. It reveals the heart. What we spend our money on are the things that we most value. It's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because your spending reflects your greatest loves and your greatest values. Now what happens, and oftentimes in many churches, is, and I hear about this being a pastor and I operate in church circles, as these conversations go on, many churches don't operate on the basis of what the New Testament instructs. Instead, they operate simply on the basis of market valuation. So what happens in churches, how they function is they say, oh, we want to hire a new, new pastor, or we want to hire a new staff member. The first question is, well, let's find out how much the other churches in our community are paying this person. And usually the second question that is asked is, well, how much do we have to pay this person? How much do we have to pay this person? Another way to say it is, how little do we have to pay this person? How little can we get with, away with, with paying this person? I believe that's a direct violation of this passage, as well as 1 Corinthians 9 and several other passages of Scripture. And what happens is that when churches hire people on the basis of market valuation, you will hire a pastor who will be looking for market valuation. 
you will be hiring a pastor who will be looking for market opportunities to get a better compensation, to get a better salary, and to do exactly what was done to him in the operation of how he was brought into that given church. Unfortunately, it happens so frequently, and it is so discouraging. I mean, stories that I can tell. Fortunately, and I think you guys should be proud and encouraged that that is not the philosophy of Cornerstone. That is not the basis of things here at Cornerstone, and I'm seated, personally, I'm exceedingly grateful um, to be a part of a church, uh, that a church that honors God's word and desires to honor God's workers, and so to that end, I say thank you. But I'm also grateful, I'm also glad about it for this as a congregation. And the reason why I'm glad about it as a con- for a con- you as a congregation is because it's what Scripture commands. And Scripture commands, as a church, you should honor God's word. And the way that you honor God's word, one, is by honoring God's workers, and that includes respect, and it also includes compensation, which Scripture commands. But to be clear, such honoring is not a blanket provision. There are conditions for when it should occur. Paul tells us this in verse 17. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Let me read it to you when it would say something differently. Let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who preach and teach. Do you hear the difference of what Paul is instructing in this passage? There's a condition. He said, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That there is, they must be good teachers, good leaders, good preachers within the church. They must labor diligently, labor in the ministry of the word, labor in preaching, labor in teaching. What does that look like, you might wonder? Obviously, a pastor has other responsibilities besides preaching and teaching. But unfortunately, many churches, many Bible-believing churches, many churches that say, we believe in the Bible, that's not their priority. And it's not the priority, frankly, of many pastors and many preachers and teachers. It's not the priority. But in healthy churches, it is. What does that look like? So, for an example, how long does it take to write to prepare a sermon? You may wonder. Well, Tim Keller says, on average, he spends about two weeks planning out a series. And then for any given message, he spends no less than 15 hours per message. John Piper says it takes him about 15 hours per message in addition to planning. Matt Chandler says it takes him about over 16 hours. John MacArthur says he spends no less than 32 hours per any one message. Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist says he spends, um, he says he, his schedule is for 33 hours of preparation before he gets into the pulpit. The same survey also surveyed another prominent pastor who said, it takes me no longer to prepare my message than it does to deliver my message. I don't think it's surprising that he was subsequently removed from ministry for plagiarism. That's true. That's true. Me personally, right now, I'm about 13 hours. I'd love to spend more time, um, but that's what I've got right now. What Scripture's teaching here is that elders... Teaching elders and ruling elders are the torchbearers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who do it well invest themselves in God's word. 
And the command of Scripture for the elders is to don't get distracted by the many other things that, go get, that are going on. Don't get distracted by all the other things that go on in church life. You need to stay focused on the thing that is most important. And the one thing that is most important for a, given, for a church is for people to receive life through the Word of God. Because it alone has the power, is attended with God's power. It alone is God's word. It alone has the power to change lives. And elders are commanded to hold the torch high and to focus on it. Correspondingly, those within the congregation are called to honor those who bear the torch. But scripture is wonderfully balanced here. Because it is focused on, not on the torch bearer, but on upholding the light of the gospel and on upholding the, the torch itself. For Paul then immediately goes on to teach and he says, okay, having honored, the, here's, having honored the torch bearer, here's how you need to deal with it when torch bearers go rogue. This is what you need to do. So one, honor God's word by honoring the torch bearer, but also honor God's word by upholding God's word. This is what he says in verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do you hear what Paul is instructing Timothy? He's saying the word of God needs to be upheld without prejudice and without compromise. Elders are not special. Yes, they're the torchbearers, but all are accountable to upholding the word of God. There's four things that I want to draw out here from Paul's instruction. The first one is this. Don't be surprised when elders are accused. Don't be surprised. You might be saying, wait a second, you know, you work in the church and, and the you know, elders are supposed to be above reproach. Well, how, how could this happen? Anyone who has been close to pastoral ministry for any period of time knows that this is just not the case. In fact, the work of elders regularly involves getting involved in very sticky and very messy, sin-filled situations. And you don't get involved in a sin-filled conflict without coming out bloodied. It just doesn't happen. You don't get involved in a conflict without coming out bloody, and you don't get involved in pastoral ministry or being an elder in the church without scars that you will carry with you into eternity. It's just the way that it is. And what's required is that it demands a firm commitment to upholding the word of God in the face of attack, oftentimes satanic, oftentimes embodied in the lives of other people. Consequently, as a result of this, and what Paul's instructing here, when he gives this warning about how this should be dealt with, he says, is don't be surprised. Frequently, elders, pastors, and ruling elders are frequently the target of accusation even more so than the members of a congregation. John Calvin identified this as he was mentoring pastors. He said, he said, for none are more liable to slanders and calumnies. What a great word, calumnies. None are more liable to slanders and calumnies, which is a misrepresentation intended to harm, than godly teachers. Although they perform their duties correctly so as not to commit any error whatever, they never escape a thousand censures. To put some more teeth on it, what does that look like locally? Um, for us, it happens at least several times a year. Some of those you're probably aware of, some of those that you're not aware of. But the point of this passage and other passages of Scripture is don't be surprised when it happens and don't be surprised when you hear about it. The second thing for you to be aware of is be cautious. Don't be surprised, but be cautious when elders are accused. 
Paul, instructing Timothy, says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why is he saying two or three witnesses? The concern here is not special treatment for elders, but the concern is that the word of God is upheld. On the one hand, failure to dismiss a right, failure to deal with a right accusation would be a stain on the gospel and a stain on the church. But at the same time, failure to dismiss a false accusation, particularly an accusation coming by one person that has gained a following, that would also be a blemish on the church and undermine the gospel message. Similarly, if an elder is divested of office and is later found out that it was just based upon one person's uh, accusation that was unfounded, that would be a stain on the church. So what Paul instructs, he says, the requirement is, do not consider, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If it doesn't meet that standard, you dismiss it. If it doesn't meet that standard, you dismiss it. Now, what does it mean to be a witness? A witness is two or three who have observed the same offense. What a witness is not, a witness is not one person who has been offended and two or three people who they've shared that with who are really sympathetic to the hurt of their friend. That's not a witness. It says, do not admit a charge except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There is one exception, one biblical exception to this rule, and that is if an elder commits a civil crime. If an elder commits a sexual offense, a crime, You should not report it directly to them, but rather you should report it directly to the police. They are a threat to public safety, and it is the duty of the civil authority to protect people from further crime and further sexual offenses. There's a role for the church in that process. But there have been too many churches in our day and age where there have been elders who have committed sexual offenses against vulnerable people in their churches, and the churches have defended them. I believe that's when Paul says that there is a sexual immorality that occurs among you that is not even tolerated among the pagans. And the church today is guilty of that. That's the one exception. So, be cautious. Don't be surprised, but be cautious when elders are accused. Third thing is to say be cautious, but encourage the process. Notice the language that's being used here. Paul is speaking to Timothy. Paul is speaking to Timothy, who is his apostolic delegate. Timothy, who has charge of this church. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, do not admit a charge. What does that sound like? What type of language does that sound like? It is legal language that Paul is using here. Do not admit a charge. He said, don't hear it, don't listen to it. Do not admit a charge except on the evidence of two or three witnesses and keep these rules without prejudging. What Paul is speaking to Timothy about is that there is, there's a process. This isn't just dealt with in the matter of hearsay, but there is a a God-honoring way to deal with these issues and there is a God-disgracing way to deal with these issues. And he's laying it out. There's other passages of Scripture that give a fuller picture of exactly how these things should be addressed. But, What does it mean for most people within the church? Is that when you hear an allegation, when you hear an accusation, when someone shares that with you, which almost certainly is gossip, when that shares with you, the adage about conflict resolution holds true. That if you're not a part of the problem, and you're not a part of the solution, 
Don't become a part of the conversation because you now are a part of the problem. The adage holds true. And so if someone comes to you sharing this to you and starts sharing an accusation against a leader, an elder, what you should say is you should say, let me stop you. And that might threaten your relationship. I understand that. Let me stop you. It sounds like you've been offended or you have a grievance. Have you discussed this with this per- that person? No? Then you shouldn't be discussing it with me. Okay? You haven't discussed it with that person. You need to do that first. Do you need help knowing what to say or knowing how to say it? Okay? Maybe if you're... Unco- are you scared to go talk to this person about this? Well, if you are... Um, maybe you could ask if I could come with you. I'm not coming as a witness because I have not observed this offense, but I'm coming as a friend, and I'll, I can, maybe I can be a friend for you in, in the midst of that. But Paul's emphasis in this passage is that the Word of God must be an up, up, upheld, and he gives further instructions. So we need to be cautious about this. We need to encourage the process. And he gives further instructions in the process. And he says this about elders must be accountable. And when an official judgment is made, he says, Timothy, rebuke them, that is the elder. I don't believe this is a principle for all church members. Rebuke them in the presence of all. Who is doing the rebuking? Timothy, the apostolic delegate who has charge of this congregation. I don't believe that this is a, this is a charge given to all Christians when they have an offense to publicly stop our worship service and to stand up and publicly rebuke somebody else. That's not what's being taught here. I hope that's self-evident. Unfortunately, practice has demonstrated otherwise in many places. And there's other passages that speak, speak specifically to the discipline of leaders. But notice what's going on. There's a rebuke done in the presence of all. Who is that rebuke for? It's not done for any sin. It's not just done for any specific sin, but it is done for those who persist in sin. Those who persist in it, who have a pattern of unrepentant sin in their life. That they have been confronted and it hasn't changed. The pattern hasn't changed. Who are persisting in it. When that occurs, there is a public rebuke that is given without partiality. Now imagine this instruction for Timothy. Timothy is not to give cover for his elder friends. His elders who he likely appointed, who he likely got, who he has served together in ministry with. Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy, he says, Timothy, you need to do this. Don't give them cover and you need to uphold these things without partiality because it is your duty first and foremost and as a church as a whole to uphold the word of God. You must be faithful to it. No matter how difficult, no matter how painful, and no matter how sad this is going to be, the word of God must be upheld without partiality. He goes on to say, when you do this, you do it as a public rebuke so that the rest may stand in fear. That would cause the congregation and the elders to be in fear of sin. That they would fear sinning. We should fear sinning. There's this wrong tendency in Christians to think, Well, if I sin, God's just going to forgive me, and my sin doesn't have any consequences. And what Scripture emphasizes is that, yes, God forgives the repentant, and yes, your sin has consequences. And we've somehow co-opted the grace to think that my sin no longer has consequences. It no longer has punishment that's taken by Christ, but our actions have consequences. And that's what Paul's laying out here. He's saying, listen, when an elder does this, publicly rebuke him so that others may be in fear and in fear of sinning. In our own circles, unfortunately, in January and in March at our Presbytery meeting, we did this two times. 
We issued rebukes of two pastors, one of whom we divested from office after 35 years of ministry. 35 years of fruitful ministry, and he is no longer a minister, and he should not be. Had another pastor who we censured and suspended him from his office, and uh, he was suspended for over six months. And we recently restored him, but the damage and consequences of his sin were so great that he subsequently needed to resign from his own congregation. Not just those examples, but if you think if you look more broadly, if you think of prominent Christian leaders in the last 10 years, many of them are no longer in ministry. Some of them because of their arrogance, some of them because of their sin, some of them because of false teaching and becoming false teachers. And Paul's admonition in this passage is honor God's word by upholding God's word without exception. All this leads to some very practical advice that he gives to Timothy, which is our fourth thing here, some very preventative wisdom. He says, given the nature of this, given that there's nothing more damaging within a church than an elder who's leading people astray, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of other people appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Paul's instruction, appoint elders with great care. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. There are some sins that are very obvious in people. It says, goes before them to judgment. Everybody knows about it. There are other sins that are not obvious. But time will reveal all. And he says that positively as well. There are some good deeds that people do that are obvious. And there are other good deeds that people do that are, that are not seen and are not known as all. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, don't be hasty. One, there's probably people who should be elders that you're not seeing because the good that they're doing is not visible. And there's probably some people who are doing some really great stuff who should not be elders because their sin is hidden. And it needs time for that to be exposed. Don't be hasty. Time will reveal all. Because there is nothing more detrimental to a church than an elder who should not be an elder. And so what the church needs, what this church needs, is not to have enough elders, but to have the right elders. Personally, for a church our size, I would like to have 19 ruling elders for our church. I think finally then we'd be able to shepherd well and proactively. We currently have three. We have three ruling elders. We've got several more, eight or nine, that are exploring the process we're working with. And you as a church should be praying for this ardently and consistently. And praying that God would raise up godly elders. And that God would work in our current elders and support them and encourage them. And you look at our three elders, our three elders that we have, Carl Farner, Doug Lipa, and Rich Buckingham. And this church is so blessed to have those three men here. I, I personally know of, I know of no person, no man, no woman with higher integrity than these three. Um, we have been through too many awful situations together, too many, I mean, really awful situations. We've also dealt with awful allegations and, and these men have maintained their integrity and they have upheld the word of God. And we support one another, we rebuke one another 
frankly, at times we irritate one another. But for more than the last 15 years, these three have carried the torch with perseverance. They have carried it without giving up when it would be much easier to do so. They have carried the torch with much sacrifice, at times being emotionally, physically, and spiritually exhausted, but not willing to let their arm fall and let the torch drop. They love Jesus and they they love his church. We've had other great elders as well that the the Lord has moved them on. Some of them the Lord's brought back here. But over the last 15 years, these three have not come off duty. They have not taken their hand off the tiller. And Cornerstone is what it is today, primarily, primarily through the Lord working through these three men who have not failed to bear the torch and who have not failed to uphold the word of God. And this church is blessed because of it. And the charge that Paul gives in this passage to all church members and to elders as well, is that we are called to honor the Word of God, and we are called to honor the Word of God by honoring God's workers and by upholding God's Word without prejudice. What I would like to do, something a little bit different right now, is I would like you as a church, we as a church, to pray for our elders and pray for God to raise up more elders. And so, um, Pray as you feel led. Pray out loud. Um, I'd like several people to pray out loud. And let us as a church devote ourselves um, to praying for God to raise up qualified elders so that the torch of God's word and the gospel would be proclaimed and it would be held high. And so let's do that as a church. Let's stand. And if you feel led to pray, uh, please, please pray out loud as a church. Um, I'll ask Rich Pravat to open us up. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would work in us so that we would be a church that upholds your word, so that the gospel would be proclaimed, that it would be advanced here in Southern Maryland to the ends of the earth, that it would be visible, not only what we say, but also in what we do. It would be manifested in our relationships and in every aspect of our lives, that you would be visible, that you would be present, that your, that your grace would overflow and touch others. Father, we thank you for Cornerstone, for how you have preserved it and upheld it. And Lord, we thank you for um, the way that you have used Cornerstone to send people into ministry, several people from our church that are pastors across the globe right now because of what you have done here. Lord, we pray that you would raise up more of them. Lord, we praise you for those that are on our staff right now that are engaged in this, for Ryan and his laboring in the ministry of the word for day as he continues to prepare and finish his training as a gospel minister. Lord, would you speak through them? Would you encourage them and uphold them? Lord, for the rest of our staff that makes this happen, for Janice and her children's ministry, for Dave as he demonstrates the gospel and, and work life, for Jill who keeps all of our books straight so that we're acting and operating with integrity, for Vicki who is such a gracious host to everyone that comes by our church office. Lord, for the many others and the people in our church that serve in so many ways that aren't on our staff, I thank you for Kristen and her leadership in our worship services and tuning our hearts to give you praise. Lord, would your word be held high, that the gospel be proclaimed, that we would delight in you, that we would worship you, that we would praise you, and that others would come to know you. In your son's name we pray, amen.